You're listening to Work Tape, episode 90. Welcome to another edition of the Work Tape podcast. It's your boy, Money Mitchell. We got Isaac Groovin Grover once again. What's happening? And uh, we're continuing. Uh, a little bit of a series that it seems like we started in regards to prolific producers. And last episode, we talked in brief time about Rick Rubin and um, specifically kind of how he had a foot in both the hip hop arena, but more importantly, and I think more prolifically, I think he made a lot more of an impact in the rock scene too. Now, Rick Rubin is kind of a little controversial because... It's not because he's white, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, he is white, but that's not necessarily the controversy of what makes Rick Rubin controversial. What makes him more controversial is it pertains more to his recent productions. There's some people who feel like he is a genius in a way uh, when it comes to producing, but then there's a lot of folks who say that he kind of just sits back and kind of lets the band take over mostly. I want to say there was a lot of contention on Linkin Park's record. I believe it was Minutes to Midnight that he produced um, in the mid-2000s. And there was a lot of speculation as to how much he really did in regards to the production of that. Some people were kind of saying that he was more of kind of a a curator or almost kind of somebody who is like a conductor. Yeah. Or almost like creating like a vibe, not necessarily doing so much, even on the technical side of producing, but more of just kind of establishing a vibe and kind of letting the bands do most of the producing. Actually, Matt Bellemi of Muse is basically quoted as saying, we'd like to thank Rick Rubin for teaching us, how not to produce, which is pretty harsh. And honestly, that sounds like something that Matt Bellemi would probably say. And then I guess Corey Taylor of Slipknot has also spoken out quite a bit in regards to alleged absence from the studio uh, in regards to when Rick Rubin was working on the We Are Not Your Kind album. And then, of course, amongst music listeners, Quite possibly the biggest kind of point of contention in a Rick Rubin project is the loudness wars. So for those who are uninitiated or who may not know, the loudness wars were kind of a period of time in the late 90s through the early to mid 2000s, where basically the dynamic range of the music was so compressed and they turned up the volume of the master so loud that on some recordings, you even had the music actually clip. And one example of that was Californication by the Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, which is a fantastic album. I mean, there's a lot of really, really great songs on, on this particular album. I mean, you had Scar Tissue, Other Side, Around the World, Californication, the title track. Um, all of those are fantastic. I mean. It really is kind of, I think, the Chili's at their prime, that and Blood Sugar. Uh, But 
blood sugar sex magic didn't have the same um issues in regards to the mixing and the mastering probably because it was more with blood sugar it was more of the early 90s so they didn't have that emphasis on loudness and just making everything as loud as possible and it shows there is definitely more dynamic range within the blood sugar album as opposed to californication some other examples of the loudness wars and specifically with rick was also the final black sabbath album 13 the one before they decided to call it quits and then death magnetic too which was kind of a uh, mixed reception Metallica record. Super crazy because I remember how destroyed that mix was. As a kid, I was like, why are my speakers distorting? <laughs> are you talking specifically about the Metallica record? Death Magnetic had that. Yeah, it did. It felt kind of saturated. You know what I mean? And then it would like clip a little bit. Right. And I liked a couple tracks on that, or a few, but it did feel, you know what I mean? It almost felt like it was just too fat and that it was starting to kind of burst at the seams, so to speak. Right. But it was cool. I did like the saturated feel, but it definitely felt oversaturated with just like, you know what I mean? Right, definitely. I feel like the overall instrumentation of Death Magnetic was probably a bit better than, than say, like a Saint Anger, though. That band has had kind of a whirlwind of history behind it and just their sound being vastly different throughout eras. And that was in big part because of the passing of some of their band members, most notably uh, Cliff Burton, their bassist, who is one of the better rock metal bassists um, and kind of was a big contributing factor in their sound. Was Cliff Burton the one that played on Ride the Lightning and albums like that? Yeah, I'm pretty sure Cliff Burton played on Ride the Lightning and Justice for All. I'm pretty sure he was all over that. Which actually, and Justice for All is kind of an album too that, despite it not being in the Loudness Wars, kind of had somewhat of an issue with mixing. But I think that was kind of intentional because that was kind of Metallica in its thrash era. Anyway, back to Rick Rubin, though. That being said, with all of the controversy in regards to you know, alleged absence in the studio and or what some would consider questionable mixing techniques. Uh, one can't deny the influence that he has had and just the absolute landmark records that he has been responsible for. And the landmark beard that he's responsible for. Right. He kind of issued in that whole uh, I've been stuck in the studio kind of look. <laughs> um, I mean, just all of the stuff with a license to ill of the BC boys. I mean, that's a, that's a landmark hip hop record. Rain and blood of Slayer. It takes a nation of millions by public enemy. And then of course we talked about the chilies with blood sugar and he was responsible with the cult and Johnny cash. I mean, in a way he had a very prolific role in actually kind of giving Johnny cash a little bit of like a, a late career resurgence um, with some of the later albums, which I believe that was the period where Johnny Cash covered uh, Nine Inch Nails, Hurt, and it became basically like a Johnny Cash song, more even than a Nine Inch Nails song. But if you talk to 99% of people, yes, with me, it's the opposite. So yeah, I really enjoy and I really actually appreciate the Nine Inch Nails version. 
I will say that I was introduced to the song, I think, through Johnny Cash. Um, I think it was just because the Johnny Cash one was played so much on radio. They were just very quick to have that song or that version be played on on radio. But then as I kind of went back and revisited the stuff, that that was more of where I kind of got the appreciation for the Nine Inch Nails version. And of course, with Trent Reznor, I mean, it's he wrote the thing. So, I mean, that being said, it is kind of one of those things where a lot of people will say that the cover is better than the original, kind of in the way that Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah is a bit more superior to the Leonard Cohen one. Oh, yeah. You know, I think I I need to listen to them again. I think I prefer the original as well. Oh, oh you prefer the Leonard Cohen over the, the Jeff Buckley? I can't remember if I do. I mean, Jeff Buckley, that's the problem with the whole cover thing is that people will do these beautiful covers. And just because they're beautiful doesn't mean I'm going to prefer them. Right. And these are honest opinions. These are not like <laughs> these hot takes are hilarious because I'm like, I'm not trying to be edgy. And I know you're not trying to be edgy. It's just how we feel, right? Right. Like Jeff Buckley's a beautiful artist. Like his hallelujah is gorgeous. I love it. It sounds good. But Leonard Cohen, you know, like when you hear someone who's kind of frail. Yeah. That's uh, very appealing to my ears. Now, again, that is the exact same argument people use with Johnny Cash. Right. With Johnny Cash, I do like the frailty in his voice. However, there are some nitpicks I have with it. I can get into it in a future episode or so, but I actually prefer Trent's, you know, his youth works to his advantage. It's like listening to Nirvana, you know, the youth and the kind of the ignorance of life is also appealing, not just the oh, I'm old and I've been around the block. I also liked Trent's youth in the fact that he doesn't know everything in life, but he's depressed, right? Sure. It's very dark. And I think something about youthful people going through dark times versus someone who's been through it all can also be a strong contender to the former. Gotcha. So I like Trent's version, simply put, and I know we can get into like a sound of silence. I mean, that's another one that I prefer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I love Simon and Garfunkel so much. Like, again, the covers aren't bad at all. Mm -hmm. It's just a preference, you know? Yeah. I'd say Hey Joe, as well as Man Who Sold the World, are two of my most favorite covers of all time. Oh, and Grapevine. Those three are the best covers I've ever heard in my life. I was about to say, is Watchtower on your list too with Hendrix? But It wasn't for some time because I preferred... Uh, Dylan? Yeah, I don't know why. I just couldn't remember his name for a second. You prefer Bob Dylan? Yeah, Knocking on Heaven's Door is one of my favorite songs. So I don't know why I wasn't thinking of Dylan for a second. But yeah, I preferred uh, Dylan's version. And I'm at this point where I didn't like Hendrix's version. But I come to like them both pretty equally. Well, I mean, I think with the Hendrix one, I mean, because it was played in like every Vietnam movie ever, it got like, <laughs> it got overplayed a little bit. I mean, that and Fortunate Son by CCR. Oh, and um, for what it's worth, Buffalo Springfield. I mean, if you're making a movie about Vietnam at all, then those three songs have to be played at some point in the film. Otherwise, it's not a movie about Vietnam, supposedly, if you don't have those songs in there. That's funny. I also think how uh, Hendrix and Dylan, because they're from that era where people sing like this. Right. And then, of course, circling back to Rick Rubin, you know, he was kind of in the, the old school hip hop scene, too, where, you know, people were, were talking about, we went down to the park and spit 
over beats, you know, that kind of flow. And actually, I think Rick Rubin's production with LL Cool J and the Beastie Boys kind of broke hip-hop out of that a little bit. I think, like, with those albums that he was doing with L and, and the Beastie Boys, I feel like, and Run DMC also kind of ushered in a different sound for hip-hop, especially, like, East Coast hip-hop in the 80s um, that had more of that rock influence. Um, but, I mean, just going down the list of some of Rick's albums, I mean, he's produced so much, or at least has had a hand in so much. I think he was more of like an exclusive producer or, you know, like things were exclusively produced by him more in the mid two thousands. But I mean, Justin Timberlake's future sex love sounds, which was a huge record. He produced a couple Weezer records in the two thousands as well. The make believe and the red album. Oh, he did do that one, which are not my favorites. Pork and beans is still a good track, but as an album, no. Um, I mean, pork and beans <laughs> is really good. That's a good song. <laughs> and then Make Believe, I think, was the album that had Beverly Hills on it. So Beverly Hills. Right. Which actually makes complete sense why Rick Rubin would be all over that. Um, he produced some U2 as well, I think, back in the day. Wait, No Line on the Horizon, or was it a different one? It was an atomic bomb. Yeah, it might have been, actually. Actually, it might have been. Okay. It might have been because of that Loudness Wars thing. Because I want to say that that was an album that kind of suffered from that too um but yeah he produced a lot of lincoln park uh thousand suns living things minutes to midnight minutes to midnight probably being the best out of all of those a thousand suns was kind of an album that grew on me a little bit i didn't like it at first because of the kind of more electronic direction but i eventually kind of learned to like it after just my palette kind of changed and i understood like oh they're doing kind of more of a the Pesh Mode thing on some of these tracks, and it's a little more conceptual. And of course, I think some of the songs off of that hit different with Chester's passing, too. I think when you look at Linkin Park's entire discography, actually, some of the albums and songs hit different when you consider, you know, Chester and that whole thing. And then, of course, he was all over... Um, the Adele record, 21. I didn't know he produced the 21 record. That I didn't know, but I can hear it in the mix already. Yeah, because he kind of has a little bit of a, a wall of sound kind of approach. Not quite in the same way that like Phil Spector did, but a lot of the Rick Rubin production sound, you know, really big and a bit outlandish at times. Ed Sheeran too, X. Wow, okay, or Multiply, I guess. Once again, not my favorite Sheeran record. But by no means the worst. By no means the worst. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, it's not plus, though. I think plus is the best from Sheeran. Yeah, that's a plus. Yeah, that's the orange one for those who are trying to figure that out. And then actually, he produced a bunch with Kanye, too. I kind of forgot that he was pretty big in producing a lot of Kanye, especially in the late 2000s, early 2010s, uh, Yeezus was the big one, I think, that he was over, which that makes a lot of sense, too, with it being kind of a a more aggressive album, in a way. So, I mean, yeah, Rick Rubin's just been kind of everywhere, and I think the big thing is, is the contributions to hip-hop and rock, but, I mean, more hip-hop, I think, even than rock, you know, just the way he was able to bridge the gap of those genres and put on some very successful bands and 
in my opinion, bands that really shaped the 2000s rock scene. I mean, with Linkin Park and the Chili's even just even just those two. I mean, that makes up a large majority of what rock was in the mid 2000s. I mean, of course, you had like the Strokes, too, and more independent stuff also. But I mean, I would say that LP and and the Chili's, you know, made up a lot of 2000s rock, especially for people in like our generation. You know, that was kind of a lot of what we heard on on rock radio. So, yeah, I mean, that's a good kind of spot to wrap up this kind of shorter episode on on Rick Rubin and the controversies as well as the accolades that he is responsible for. He's easily the rickiest of the Ricks. <laughs> well, maybe besides Rick Astley, I would say that that would be. <laughs> OK, well, that's probably the biggest Rick of them all. <laughs> yeah, the biggest Rick is Rick Astley, just off of the Rick role alone. Okay, well, then the second biggest Rickiest of the Ricks. Yeah, it is going to be Rick Rubin, though. I mean, actually, I think he has a podcast, too, which talks a lot about some of the production stuff. So if you want more insight into what he did or, I guess, didn't do in the studio, you might be able to listen to that. From the horse's mouth himself. Right. But speaking of more producers in the rock scene, especially ones who carried over into the 2000s and had longevity, such as Rick Rubin. We got to talk about Brian Eno next time. I mean, just even his early stuff kind of laying the groundwork for like ambient music too. And like Aphex Twin and stuff like that was probably... But Brian Eno, I mean, just behind so many bands himself, The Talking Heads, U2, Coldplay. Radiohead? Uh... I'm not sure if Radiohead and Brian Eno ever joined forces. I would be kind of surprised if they didn't, considering the direction that Radiohead went in. I know Nigel's a big one with radio, but I just wasn't sure for a second. Yeah. I know that Brian Eno did a lot with Coldplay, though, especially with that Viva record. Yes. You and I love that record. That's like one of my favorite records of all time. Yeah. I think it's great. I think that in a way... Everything that Coldplay kind of did after Viva, mm. I feel like the consistency of quality kind of went down a little bit. It went down. We fanned over um, Ghost Stories. You and I like that. But other than that, like their consistency was gone. Yeah, I actually enjoyed Milo too. I think Milo was kind of a, a record that gets an unnecessary amount of hate. I don't mind it though. I do like that record because it was so nostalgic for me. Yeah, me as well. And I think that there's some absolutely phenomenal tracks on that from Coldplay. But the aesthetic was definitely the sequel to Viva La Vida. <laughs> yeah, but then, I mean, I do agree with you, though, which is that after Viva, I feel like the consistency of quality went down. Coldplay became a bit more hit and miss, I think, after Viva. And it's kind of a shame. I feel like if they kind of maybe did another reset like that, that they might end up putting out something really good, especially because Music of the Spheres was just a kind of a dumpster fire. 100%. The fact that it got a Album of the Year nomination at the Grammys still kind of baffles me because I'm like, that was just not a very good showing for Coldplay. The fact that it exists baffles me, but yeah, Brian Eno. <laughs> yeah, we got to get into Brian Eno. Just with the talking heads and Coldplay, I mean, that's enough for an episode and then of course, you too as well. Joshua Tree was Brian Eno also. So anyway, so this has been a, another edition of the Work Tape Podcast. It's your boy Money Mitchell, Isaac Groove and Grover. 
Uh, stay hydrated. It's heating up out there. So uh, make sure to drink plenty of water. Peace.